Book One, Chapter One of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book One The Boy Poet. 1819 to 1842. Chapter 1. His Ancestors. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. If origin, if early training and habits of life, if tastes and character and associations fix a man's nationality, then John Ruskin must be reckoned a Scotsman. He was born in London, but his family was from Scotland. He was brought up in England, but the friends and teachers, the standards and influences of his early life, were chiefly Scottish. The writers who directed him into the main lines of his thought and work were Scotsmen, from Sir Walter and Lord Lindsay and Principal Forbes to the master of his later studies of men and the means of life, Thomas Carlyle. The religious instinct, so conspicuous in him, was a heritage from Scotland. Thence the combination of shrewd common sense and romantic sentiment, the oscillation between levity and dignity, from caustic jest to tender earnest, the restlessness, the fervour, the impetuosity, all these are the tokens of a Scotsman of parts, and were highly developed in John Ruskin. In the days of old Lang Syne, the Rins of Galloway, that hammer-headed promontory of Scotland which looks towards Belfast Lock, was the home of two great families, the Agnews and the Adairs. The Agnews, of Norman race, occupied the northern half, centering about their island fortress of Loch Nall, where they became celebrated for a long line of hereditary sheriffs and baronets who have played no inconsiderable part in public affairs. The southern half, from Port Patrick to the Mull of Galloway, was held by the Adairs, or, as formerly spelt, Edziers, who took their name from Edgar, son of Dovenold, one of the two Galway leaders at the Battle of the Standard. Three hundred years later, Robert Edzier, who does not know his descendant and namesake, Robin Adair, settled at Gainock, near the head of Loose Bay, and for another space of three hundred years his children kept the same estate, in spite of private feud and civil war and religious persecution, of which they had more than their fair share. At the beginning of the eighteenth century, John Adair, the laird of Little Gennock, was married to Mary Agnew, a near kinswoman of the celebrated Sir Andrew, Colonel of the Scots Fusiliers at Dettingen. The exact relationship of Mary Agnew, to the bravest man in the British army, remains undecided. But letters still extant from the Lady Agnew of the day address her as Dear Molly and end your affectionate cousin or kinswoman. Her son Thomas succeeded his father in 1721 and, retiring with his captaincy, settled on the estate. He married Jean, daughter of Andrew Ross of Balsarrach and Balcale, a lady noted for her beauty, her wit and her Latin scholarship, and a member of a family which has given many distinguished men to the army and navy. 
Among them, Admiral Sir John Ross, the Arctic explorer, Sir Hugh Dalrymple, and Field Marshal Sir Hugh Dalrymple Ross, were all her great-nephews, and her son, Dr John Adair, was the man in whose arms Wolfe died at the taking of Quebec. It is he who is shown in Benjamin West's picture supporting the general. Dr Adair's sister Catherine, the daughter of Thomas Adair and Jean Ross, married the Reverend James Tweddle, minister of Glenluce from 1758 to 1778, representative of an old covenanting family and holder of the original covenant, which had been confided to the care of his great-aunt Catherine by Bailey of Jarviswood on his way to execution in the killing time. The document was sold with his library at his death, his children being then under age, and is now in the Glasgow Museum. One of these children, Catherine, married a John Ruskin. The origin of the name Ruskin is English, dating from the Middle Ages. Soon after the dissolution of Furness Abbey, Richard Ruskin and his family were landowners at Dalton in Furness. One branch, and that with which we are especially concerned, settled in Edinburgh. John Ruskin, our subject's grandfather, when he ran away with Catherine Tweddle in 1781, was a handsome lad of twenty. His portrait, as a child, proves his looks, and he evidently had some charm of character or promise of power, for the escapade did not lose him the friendship of the lady's family. Major Ross, her uncle and guardian, remained a good friend to the young couple. She herself was only sixteen at her marriage, a bright and animated brunette, as her miniature shows, in later years ripening to a woman of uncommon strength, with old-fashioned piety of a robust, practical type, and a spirit which the trials of her afterlife, and they were many, could not subdue. Her husband set up in the wine trade in Edinburgh. For many years they lived in the old town, then a respectable neighbourhood, among a cultivated and well-bred society in which they moved as equals, entertaining with others such a man as Dr Thomas Brown, the professor of philosophy, a great light in his own day, and still conspicuous in the constellation of Scottish metaphysicians. Their son, John James Ruskin, born May 10th, 1785, was sent to the famous high school of Edinburgh, under Dr Adam, the most renowned of Scottish headmasters, and there he received the sound, old-fashioned, classical education. Before he was sixteen, his sister Jessie was already married at Perth to Peter Richardson, a tanner living at Bridge End by the Tay, and so his cousin, Margaret Cox, was sent for to fill the vacant place. She was a daughter of old Mr Ruskin's sister, who had married a Captain Cox, sailing from Yarmouth for the herring fishery. He had died in 1789, or thereabouts, from the results of an accident while riding homewards to his family after one of his voyages, and his widow maintained herself in comfort by keeping the old King's Head Inn at Croydon Marketplace. Of her two daughters, the younger married another Mr Richardson, a baker at Croydon, so that, by an odd coincidence, there were two families of Richardsons, unconnected with one another, except through their relationship to the Ruskins. Margaret, the elder daughter, who came to keep house for her uncle in Edinburgh, was then nearly twenty years of age. 
She had been the model pupil at her Croydon day school. Tall and handsome, pious and practical, she was just the girl to become the confidant and adviser of her dark-eyed, active and romantic young cousin. Some time before the beginning of 1807, John James, having finished his education at the high school, went to London, where a place had been found for him by his uncle's brother-in-law, Mr McTaggart. He was followed by a kind letter from Dr Thomas Brown, who advised him to keep up his Latin and to study political economy, for the professor looked upon him as a young man of unusual promise and power. During some two years he worked as a clerk in the house of Sir William Gordon, Murphy and Co., where he made friends and laid the foundation of his prosperity. For along with him at the office there was a Mr Peter Domek, owner of the Spanish vineyards of Macanudo. Learning the commercial part of his business in London, the headquarters of the sherry trade. He admired his fellow clerk's capacity so much as to offer him the London agency of his family business. Mr McTaggart found the capital in consideration of their taking his relative, Mr Telford, into the concern. And so they entered into partnership, about 1809, as Ruskin, Telford and Domek. Domek contributing the sherry, Mr. Henry Telford, the capital, and Ruskin, the brains. How he came by his business capacity may be understood, and in some measure perhaps how his son came by his flexible and forcible style, from a letter of Mrs. Catherine Ruskin, written about this time, in which, moreover, there are a few details of family circumstances and character not without interest. John James Ruskin had been protesting that he was never going to marry, but meant to devote himself to his mother. She replied, But my son, an old bachelor, believe me, my beloved child, I feel the full force and value of that affection that could prompt to such a plan. Dear as your society is to me, it would then become the misery of my existence. Could I see my child so formed for domestic happiness deprived of every blessing on my account? No, my dear John, I do not know a more unhappy being than an old bachelor. May God preserve my child from realising the dreary picture. As soon as you can keep a wife, you must marry with all possible speed. That is, as soon as you find a very amiable woman. She must be a good daughter and fond of domestic life, and pious without ostentation. For remember no woman without the fear of God can either make a good wife or a good mother. Free-thinking men are shocking to nature, but from an infidel woman, good Lord, deliver us. I have thought more of it than you have done, for I have two or three presents carefully laid by for her, and I have also been foresightly as to purchase two Dutch toys for your children, in case you might marry, before we have free intercourse with that country. Who can say what I can say? Here is my son, a handsome, accomplished young man of three-and-twenty. He will not marry, that he may take care of his mother. Here is my dear Margaret, handsome, amiable, and good, and she would not leave her aunt, I mean aunt, for any man on earth. Ah, my dear and valuable children, dear is your affection to my heart, but I will never make so base a use of it. I entreat you, my dear John, that you will not give yourself one moment's uneasiness about me. I will at all events have £86 a year for life that your father cannot deprive me of, 
and though I could not live very splendidly in a town on this, yet with a neat little house and garden in the country, it would afford all the means of life in fullness to Meggy, myself, and our servant. You forget, my dear, how much a woman can do without in domestic affairs to save money. A woman that has any management at all can live with more comfort on fifty pounds a year than a man could do on two hundred. There was a year of my life that I maintained myself and two children on twenty pound. The bread, too, was half the loaf that year, and we did not indeed live very sumptuously, nor shall I say our strength improved much, but I did not contract one farthing of debt, and that to me supplied the want of luxuries. Now, my dear John, let me never hear a fear expressed on my account. There is no fear of me. Make yourself happy and all will be well, and for God's sake, my beloved boy, take care of your health. Take a good drink of porter to dinner and supper, and a little wine now and then, and tell me particularly about your new lodgings, etc. He returned home to Edinburgh on a visit and arranged a marriage with his cousin Margaret, if she would wait for him until he was safely established. And then he set to work at the responsibilities of creating a new business. It was a severer task than he had anticipated, for his father's brain and business, as the above letter hints, had both gone wrong. He left Edinburgh and settled at Bowerswell, Perth, ended tragically, and left a load of debt behind him which the son, sensitive to the family honour, undertook to pay before laying by a penny for himself. It took nine years of assiduous labour and economy. He worked the business entirely by himself. The various departments that most men entrust to others he filled in person. He managed the correspondence. He travelled for orders. He arranged the importation. He directed the growers out in Spain and gradually built up a great business, paid off his father's creditors, and secured his own competence. This was not done without sacrifice of health, which he never recovered, nor without forming habits of over-anxiety and toilsome minuteness which lasted his life long. But his business cares were relieved by cultural tastes. He loved art, painted in watercolours in the old style, and knew a good picture when he saw it. He loved literature, and read aloud finally all the old standard authors, though he was not too old-fashioned to admire Pickwick and the Noctes Ambrosianae when they appeared. He loved the scenery and architecture among which he had travelled in Scotland and Spain, but he could find interest in almost any place and any subject. An alert man in whom practical judgment was joined in a romantic temperament, strong feelings and opinions to extended sympathies. His letters, of which there are many preserved, bear witness to his character, taste and intellect, curiously anticipating on some points those of his son. His portraits give the idea of an expressive face, sensitive, refined, every feature a gentleman's. So after those nine years of work and waiting, he went to Perth to claim his cousin's hand. She was for further delay, but with the minister's help, he persuaded her one evening into a prompt marriage in the Scottish fashion, drove off with her next morning to Edinburgh, and on to the house he had prepared in London at 54 Hunter Street, Brunswick Square, February the 27th, 1818. The heroine of this little drama was no ordinary bride. At Edinburgh she had found herself, though well brought up for Croydon, inferior to the society of the modern Athens. As the affianced of a man of ability, she felt it her duty to make herself his match in mental culture, 
as she was already in her own department of practical matters. Under Dr. Brown's direction, and stimulated by his notice, she soon became, not a blue stocking, but well-read, well-informed above the average. She was one of those persons who set themselves a very high standard, and resolved to drag both themselves and their neighbours up to it. But, as the process is difficult, so it is disappointing. People became rather shy of Mrs. Ruskin, and she of them, so that her life was solitary and her household quiet. It was not merely from narrow Puritanism that she made so few friends. Her morality and her piety, strict as they were within our own lines, permitted her most of the enjoyments and amusements of life. Still less was there any cynicism or misanthropy. But she devoted herself to her husband and son. She was too proud to court those above her in worldly rank, and she was not easily approached except by people fully equal to her in strength of character, of whom there could never be many. The few who made their way to her friendship found her a true and valuable friend. End of Book One Chapter One Recording by Graham Arrowsmith